Does your life change once a month because of your period? Oh, what a disaster. Let me tell it to you straight. Unexplainable can change the way you feel about your period. For the next two weeks, Unexplainable is doing a series on the scientific treasures hidden in periods. You wouldn't think so, but it's wonderful. Fabulous. I call it just plain smart. Remember, there's a feeling with Unexplainable. It can actually change the way you feel about your period. This week on Unexplainable, the bleeding edge. Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Well, my, my story starts in 1989 when I ate a hamburger, uh, what was to become my very last hamburger, my very last piece of meat. Our storyteller here is Dr. Melanie Joy. I got violently, violently ill, more ill than I've ever been in my life. I had a fever so high I was hallucinating. And as it turned out, that hamburger had been contaminated with Campylobacter, which is like the red meat version, essentially, of salmonella. And so, you know, when you're just really sick like that, you don't want to eat the last food that you had. So um, I was just too disgusted to eat meat after that, so I stopped. Um, and I, I became, essentially, I became a vegetarian by accident. But even if it was an accident, eating vegetarian was a real lifestyle change. Melanie ate lots of meat, and she was especially fond of meat lovers' pizza. So she had to figure out new things to cook and new ways to top pizzas. She started poking around in books for recipes and tips. And in this exploration, I inevitably stumbled upon information about animal agriculture. And what I learned just shocked and horrified me. She couldn't believe the level of animal suffering. She couldn't believe the conditions for human workers. I couldn't believe what was happening to the environment. And this was back in the 80s, right? So the consciousness wasn't even near what it is now. But still, it was just horrific. Melanie wanted everyone to know what she was learning. So she would sit down for meals with her friends and family. And these were compassionate people who were fired up about social justice. She thought they'd be a receptive audience. What shocked me in some ways even more than what I was learning was that nobody I talked to was willing to hear what I had to say. I mean, the response was almost always something like, don't tell me that, you'll ruin my meal. Something was going on so that they would just shut down, like just stop thinking and feeling when it came to this issue of eating animals. Again, these were people who were compassionate and empathetic, except when farmed animals were concerned. So as Melanie tried her best to tell people about the problems with eating animals, I just became very curious. And my question was, why do good people turn away from bad practices? Why do caring people turn away from atrocities? One PhD and six books later, Melanie's got a pretty good answer. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect. I'm Sigal Samuel. All season long, we've basically been taking the same journey that Melanie took when she first started exploring vegetarianism. We've talked about meatpacking workers losing fingers as they work at dizzying speeds, and about how factory farming is a danger to everybody's health. We've talked about communities breathing in the fumes from open pits of hog waste, and about the deforestation of the Amazon. And we've talked about pigs and chickens living in conditions we'd never accept for our pets. To me, the case against eating factory farmed animals is strong. And yet, even though people like Melanie have been raising awareness for decades, factory farms still supply most of the world's meat 
and almost all of the meat in the U.S. So for our final episode of this season, Melanie Joy helps us understand why we're so determined to ignore the problems with our meat. And she explains why she thinks that might change soon. But before we look forward, let's go back. Back to when Melanie was enrolling in grad school to figure out why the heck her family didn't want to hear about the problems with the meat they were eating. She got to an answer by reading up on issues that weren't connected to animals. Yes, she was studying the psychology of meat eating, but she found that the way to do that was to step back and look at the bigger picture, the psychology of violence and nonviolence. And I realized that this issue that I was dealing with when it came to farmed animals was really not terribly different than other issues where we were talking about other global atrocities. Basically, humans have lots of natural empathy. We like to like others. But when we get caught up in big societal systems like sexism or racism or classism, Melanie says they get in the way of that empathy. And Melanie was finding that eating animals also involves an empathy-killing-ism. She calls it carnism. It might seem kind of weird to say that eating animals is at all similar to sexism or racism. And Melanie definitely acknowledges that there are important differences. But she says that all these isms do share a thought pattern that plays out in our brains in similar ways. So when we look at all systems of oppression, classism, racism, sexism, and so forth, they all reflect and reinforce the very same mentality. This belief that certain individuals or groups are more worthy of moral consideration, of being treated with respect, essentially, than others. I want to lay out exactly how this pattern of thoughts and justifications works. So let's take a clear-cut example. One we're familiar with, 1950s-style sexism. You know, women, right before the second wave of feminism, women were essentially relegated to the realm of domestic servitude. How was your day? Oh, pretty quiet. I did the washing this morning and cleaned the house. The primary identity of, of women and value came from fulfilling the roles of, of mother. Took Junior to the dentist. Wife. And did the shopping. Keeper of the domestic domain, essentially. I put up 16 jars of jam this afternoon. I'm sorry, supper's late. This particular description mostly applies to middle-class white women, but women of color and women in lower socioeconomic classes were also limited to the domestic sphere in a lot of ways. They were just doing housework in other people's homes as well as their own. Now, to defend this blatant sexism, people went through a lot of mental gymnastics. There were these, what I call the three ends of justification. Normal, natural, and necessary. This is the pattern I was talking about earlier. Melanie says we use these three ends to justify all systems of oppression. So in this example, it's normal for women to seek nothing other than domestic bliss. If she's a wife, then, then chances are she'll be a mother. Everyone's doing it. It's a social norm. If she's a mother, then chances are she should be or will be a caretaker of a child or children. It's, it's natural. If she is to be a caretaker of children, how is she to give over this function to other people? And, of course, you know, it's necessary. If she's out of the house, Somebody else has got to be in the house for her. This is the third N of the three N's of justification. It's necessary. What does poor dear old dad do when he gets home 
and he's hungry or thirsty or he doesn't have his laundry. It's necessary. We need somebody to be taking care of household labor for the economy, for the function of society. Somebody must take care of the children. Someone needed to do the laundry and the dishes. Someone needed to cook the food and jar all the jams. Believing in these three ends does not necessarily mean that, in this case, men didn't care about their wives, just like it doesn't mean that humans don't care about farmed animals. What it means is that we feel justified in maintaining their subordinate position. And when they, in the case of women, when they speak out about it, we feel justified in devaluing their perceptions. As she looked into the body of research being done, Melanie saw this basic 3N model playing out over and over again in oppression over historical periods. Pseudoscientific research was used to paint poor people and immigrants as naturally inferior. People talked about slavery as a necessary evil. And just like Melanie saw the 3Ns used to justify all this oppression, she sees the 3Ns used to justify carnism. I mean, first of all, eating animals is a social norm. And the idea that it's normal is reinforced constantly in how we talk about meat. Take the paleo diet, for example. The paleo diet, the modern-day version of what our Stone Age ancestors ate. The marketing is all about how paleo is normal because we've been eating meat for millions of years. But the other ends make an appearance, too. If I could sum up the paleo way in a word, it would be natural. It's true that we've been eating animals for millennia. However... It's also true that our very earliest ancestors were fruit eaters. And for millennia, only a tiny percentage of our diet has has come from animals. And of course, we've been raping and killing infants and murdering for just as long as we've been eating animals. But we don't use the longevity as, you know, a justification for them today. Also, if you've ever contemplated becoming a vegetarian, you've probably heard about how it's going to be so hard to stay healthy and get protein. It's just one of a couple of the ways we justify meat as necessary. Of course, there's a tremendous amount of literature debunking this myth today, but that is probably the core myth of necessity. The other is that we just can't feed the world and all the many people now on it without meat. Yeah, well, I mean, the United Nations would disagree. In fact, the opposite is true. So, you know, we know that animal agriculture is a key driver, for example, of climate change, deforestation, of desertification, of fresh water depletion, issues that affect all of us, but in particular affect people in the developing world. What's necessary is to eat fewer, if any, animals at all. Necessary if we hope to, to halt the progress of climate change in any appreciable way. Necessary if we hope to have healthy bodies, and certainly necessary if we hope to have a a humane world for animals. So in her three ends, Melanie had an answer to the question that had bothered her at her dinner table. Her family shut down conversations about the problems with eating animals because they'd inherited this tangle of compelling myths and stories that justified eating animals. But Melanie has hope that we can untangle ourselves, and we'll hear why after the break. Welcome back. 
Before the break, we looked at how people justified 1950s American sexism, and we applied those lessons to meat-eating today. But there's another lesson we can learn here. If we want to figure out how we can move away from meat-eating now, we can look at how people started moving away from sexism back then. What does the emancipation of American women mean to you? A lot of people put a lot of effort into making sure that the second wave of American feminism made waves. But Melanie Joy argues that non-human actors also made a difference. Electricity, uh, gas, mechanical servants, you know, something about um, freedom from drudgery. We can't downplay the role of technology in enabling uh, a real shift back in the early 1960s. Talk about emancipation. Take the family wash, for instance. No more clotheslines, no more dark basements. Boy, here's real emancipation from old-fashioned chores. We have the the advent of the dishwasher, um, the electric washing machine, for example, the birth control pill. So if we think of the 3N justification for 1950s-style sexism as natural, normal, and above all, necessary... What happened was, you know, that it became increasingly difficult to argue for the necessity of women to remain in this position of domestic servitude. Just set a dial and walk away. That's the kind of emancipation any woman can understand. And so when we no longer can justify a behavior as necessary, then that behavior takes on a moral dimension or an ethical dimension it didn't have in quite the same way before. And so what's really interesting is that technological changes really helped pave the way for society to become more open to engaging with the issue of feminism, the issue of equal rights for women, because there was no longer as strong an investment in maintaining women in positions of domestic servitude. Emancipation. Fine. I could use a little. Which is not to say that sexism is solved or that technology moved the needle all by itself. But technological change might have made society a little more willing to take ideas from feminists like Florence Kennedy or Gloria Steinem. And it might now make society more receptive to the Melanie Joys of the world, sitting at the dinner table and trying to tell people about all the problems with their meat. Yeah, I've seen a lot out here in the West. But a juicy charbroiled burger with a patty made from plants? The new technology that might help us tackle carnism is meat alternatives. When the wagon of change comes, you ride along with it. Of course, we have had meat alternatives for a long time. In China, they've had sophisticated meat substitutes dating back to the Middle Ages, when they served these elaborate banquets of fake duck and imitation pork. But in the last decade, we've stepped things up a notch. Move over, cows. There's a new lab synthesized plant-based burger. The plant burger that bleeds like real meat. High-tech food from Silicon Valley. It looks like beef, but isn't. First, there are companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. They've got billions of dollars in investment to create plant-based patties that do a better job of mimicking meat than your traditional bean burger. The makers of the Impossible Burger isolated a chemical called heme, for example, from soy roots. Heme is what makes your blood look red, and it's part of what makes meat so meaty. It's what makes their patties bleed so convincingly. And more and more restaurants have been convinced. 
Already, the company launched a partnership with Burger King to serve the Impossible Whopper in 7,000 locations nationwide by the end of the year. In early 2020, plant-based meat sales increased 264%. And there's more on the horizon. Coming up... Real meat grown in the lab. Could cultured burgers do away with the need for mass livestock farming? Researchers have also been given billions of dollars to try and grow meat from animal cells in a lab. That way, instead of killing a sentient creature, they could just take some animal muscle cells, apply them to a little scaffold, and let them multiply and grow until, ta-da, real meat with less of that morally fraught aftertaste. If we look at the trajectory of, you know, veganism, and we compare this with the trajectory of feminism, for example, and and other social justice movements, um, we can see that it's heading in the same direction. Do you think that in, let's say, 50 years, it'll be just as unthinkable for us to eat meat from factory farms as it is now to subject women to the kinds of conditions that they were living under 100 years ago? I don't know if it's going to happen within 50 years, but I do think that that will eventually happen. I think it's useful to be a little skeptical here. After all, Americans eat 200 pounds of meat a year on average. And as countries like China and India develop economically, trend lines suggest that they're adding more animal protein to their diets, not less. But it's true. Thanks to new technologies like plant-based and lab-grown meat, this is the easiest it's ever been to change our carnivorous habits. It's the easiest it's ever been to really sit with the horrors of factory farms and decide, I don't want to contribute to the animal suffering. I don't want to contribute to the human suffering. I don't want to contribute to the environmental destruction. And it's not really necessary for me to do so. Right, Miss Bates, we'd like to try to find out how determined a career girl you are. This episode was produced and co-reported by Bird Pinkerton and edited by Amy Drostowska, two very determined career girls. Our hosts are Dylan Matthews and me, Sigal Samuel. Now, if you'd please answer these questions, and here is your first question. Jillian Weinberger is the senior producer of this show, and Jared Paul mixes it. Liliana Michelena fact-checked this episode, and Liz Nelson is the executive producer for Vox Podcasts. Would you give up your career if the right man proposed? No, I wouldn't. My career means too much to me. Not even if your dream Prince Charming were the man? Would you ever give up your dream burger, even if it was a dream Prince Charming of a patty? That's the question Melanie Joy asks in her books, which we've linked to in the show notes. We also want to thank Viveka Morris from the Yale Law, Ethics, and Animals program who advised us. Do you ever read love stories, Miss Bates? Well, occasionally. Music in this episode from APM, Poddington Bear, and Chris Zabriskie. We also used a clip courtesy of the NYC Municipal Archives WNYC collection. Do you ever picture yourself in the situation the heroine finds herself in? Yes, I do sometimes. Then you have thought about yourself in the character of a wife. We're grateful to Lauren Katz for her social media work and to Kate Daly for all her help. 
Thank you, Miss Bates. Now we'll find out how determined a career girl our judges rate you. Dr. Roslow? This podcast is made possible thanks to support from Animal Charity Evaluators. They research and promote the most effective ways to help animals. If you liked this podcast, we're going to be covering this topic a lot more. And in fact, we're hiring an editor to help us do that. We've got a link to Future Perfect's Future of Meat page in the show notes if you want to find out more. With 100 as the maximum possible rating, we rate Miss Bates at 62. She says she would not give up her career for marriage, yet she has a definite yearning for romance. And we'd love it if you would give this podcast five stars in spite of our yearning for romance. <laughs>